From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode, Professor William Billy Crow, Professor of Nematology, specifically landscape nematology, at the University of Florida in Gainesville. He is involved with the Florida Nematode Assay Lab and has developed new methods in nematode extraction. He speaks widely on nematodes to turfgrass managers in the southern U.S., and we are thrilled to have him on this episode. When you're considering applying a nematocyte and you know the target, you also are thinking about the most effective application method. Well, if you haven't seen the advances in technology, now's the time to check out our newest sponsor of Frankly Speaking, Frost Inc. Spray Technology Products. Frost is about making your spray day a better day. Whether GPS technology on your sprayer or mixing equipment to properly mix your products or make effective application, visit them at frostserve.com. That's frostserve.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Professor William Billy Crow. Really appreciate you taking the time, Billy. How on earth does someone who goes to Auburn wind up being a professor in nematology in Gainesville? Okay, wasn't one of those things you grow up. I'm going to be a nematologist That's when I grow up, right? <laughs> but uh, no, I started college late. I'd worked construction, been around the world, and and ended up going to University of Hawaii for my bachelor's degree, and then went off for my master's at Auburn. And uh, some of you all listening probably know uh, Beth Gertal at Auburn. I was her first graduate student. Ended up doing a, my master's research project on that involved a nematode component, and they had one nematology class, plant nematology, that was taught by Dr. Rodriguez Cabana, who's world-renowned nematologist, and I just like, this is like the coolest thing I have ever seen in my life. I just fell in love with nematodes and came down to the University of Florida, and I uh, got my PhD here in nematology and loved it ever since. So what I'm wondering is, I think the plant pathologists, they take you in, right? But I don't really think they mm-hmm. like you, right? Plant pathologists don't really like nematologists, do they? Well, I mean, most I mean, <laughs> most agricultural nematologists are plant pathologists, right? Right. Here at University of Florida, we're actually in with the entomologists. And of course, you're intimately involved with the Florida Nematode Assay Lab and mm-hmm. providing expertise for landscapes. So how did landscapes, was it because of the work with Beth that you got interested in turf that sort of led you naturally to be a nematologist in turf? No, again, another one of those roundabout things, but I actually did my PhD uh, working with uh, nematodes on potatoes and cotton. When I finished, was finishing my PhD here at University of Florida, Texas A&M had two positions open. Uh, one was as a potato pathologist, and the other one was turfgrass pathology. And uh, I applied for the potato job. And a month later, they called and asked if I would interview for the turfgrass job. And I was like, well, I applied for the other one. You know, I never worked with turf before. And they said they put all the applicants for both jobs in the one pool. And they said, right now, you're the top candidate for the turf job. I said, oh, okay, I'm sure I'll come interview. And that kind of got me working in turf. And then uh, Bob Dunn retired here at University of Florida. And this job came open, so I got to come back to Florida. I'm sixth generation from Florida, so this is... Oh, that's great. Yeah, my my mama was really happy. (laughs) Oh, this is... (laughs) That is great. So, So talking a little bit more generally to start, right? How different are the systems to manage nematodes in the potato, cotton sort of production systems 
and the turf grass system, maybe a more perennial system. Uh, if okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's really different. I mean, when you're dealing with annual crops, typically you're treating before you plant, you know, and then you kind of knock your population down, you grow your crop, and by the time the nematodes start building up high numbers again, your, your crop's done. Generally, you're just treating you know, once a year, typically. It's easy to quantify damage. One of the things I did as a PhD student was I drive the economic thresholds for sting nematode on potatoes and cotton. Well, that is very difficult to do on turf grass. You have a perennial system. And how do you put a dollar value? Like with potatoes, okay, this is the price of potatoes, and, and so your treatment can't cost more than your gain in yield by treating. Well, turf, you know, what is the actual dollar yield? value you're, lo- yeah. you're losing, you know, yeah. or gaining? And so that's a real challenge. Now, in both systems, Billy, in both systems, most of the nematode species that exist as part of the food web in the soil are not pathogenic, are not problematic. It's a small percentage of them that are plant parasitic. Am I wrong about that? No, that's correct. You know, uh, 70% of the animals on Earth are nematodes. Very few of them are, are parasites of plants or, or animals that we would consider damaging. So most nematodes eat bacteria and fungi and algae, and nematodes eat other nematodes and other small animals in the soil. But, of course, the ones that I work with are the parasites right. that are uh, cause plant damage. So when you're working in these annual production systems, Billy, like potatoes, for example, mm-hmm. does the system itself create opportunities for the nematodes, the parasitic nematodes to reestablish? In other words, the disturbance and the planting and the reintroduction uh, of the plant material. And and of course, maybe the chronic use of nematicides in those cases. Mm -hmm. Why are some systems prone to big problems with these kinds of nematodes, these plant parasites? Well, uh, for one thing, I mean, here in Florida, we're growing everything on sand, right? Some of the most damaging of these nematodes, this is the perfect habitat for them. And uh, we're warm enough, they can be active year-round. So, you know, in New York, you have opportunity to have fewer generations of uh, nematodes to reproduce, whereas here in Florida, if there's food, they can reproduce year-round. The other thing is that a lot of our more, let's say, tropical, subtropical nematode species have a lot wider host range. They can attack a lot of different types of plants. Some things, for example, in the potato system, I was doing my PhD work. One of the things that we identified was that the main reason they had sting nematode problems now, here in Florida, we grow potatoes in the wintertime, okay, because mm-hmm. it's cooler. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the summer, they grow this cover crop of sorghum sudan grass. And sorghum sudan grass is like the best host ever for sting nematodes. And so the uh, nematodes have built really high numbers on the cover crop. And then when they planted their potatoes, the numbers were really high, and they would stunt the potatoes back. That's a good example of hopefully once they figured that out, they then ceased that practice, right? Uh, no, because uh, w- one of the things I did as a PhD student was looked at different uh, alternative cover crops. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you could reduce the nematode problems. But, uh, for example, when we went to some other cover crops, we d- decreased our nematode problems, but we uh, uh, increased uh, you know, problems with certain bacterial pathogens. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you can treat a nematic- with a nematicide for nematodes, but there's really nothing you can treat for you know, bacterial diseases. No pseudomonas and things. So, 
That was one issue. Uh, there was another issue was if you did uh, like leguminous cover crops in the summer, they decompose really rapidly when you incorporate them in soil, whereas the sorghum Sudan grass decomposes a lot slower. And so that in our sandy soil, uh, you need that residue to uh, maintain your bed integrity. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, erosion happens and your tubers end up exposed at the surface. As we moved away to other cover crops, we had those problems as well. So even though the cover crop was driving the nematode populations, uh, the fact that there was effective nematicides they could use ensured that they would still do that. So uh, they're still using those cover crops <laughs> today, 25 years later. <laughs> and applying nematicides routinely. Yes, okay. yes. All right, so listen, one of the things that anybody who pays attention to this understands is, as you mentioned already, the soil you're growing in is going to matter, right? Sandy soils. Correct. But at the same time, here's the conundrum. Sandy mm-hmm. soils are good, but nematodes need a lot of water. Sandy soils are good, and you'd think the nematicides would move in them effectively, but you've got to move them in the water, and sands generally are drier. And on top of that, Mm. golf playing surfaces are generally preferred to be on the drier side. So let's just take a second and talk a little bit about soil properties and how they might influence the what I call the war of attrition, if you will, Billy, you know, yeah. plants are going to produce roots and nematodes are going to get their fair share. Right. And maybe they get enough and not cause a problem. We'll get the thresholds in a minute. But let's talk a little bit about soil types and the impacts on these sure. particular problems. A lot of the more damaging nematodes that I deal with prefer sandy habitats. Sting nematode really requires about 85 percent or greater sand content. OK, so. You know, it's found native in Florida, along the Atlantic coast, right along the coast there in the sandy soils, and then along the Gulf Coast in the sandy soils. But now in a USGA spec, putting green is ideal habitat for these nematodes. So when, if they get in there, they'll do very well. For example, when I was in Dallas, I found sting nematodes and putting greens there, which they wouldn't survive in the, that native heavy soil they have. But if they get into a USGA spec putting green, they do very well. What is it about sand those sting nematodes like? Because don't well, they really like water films? Sting nematode, believe it or not, it is very sensitive to moisture. And if you ever try growing these nematodes, which probably none of people listening <laughs> will actually try to growing them, but if you want to kill sting nematodes really quickly, you overwater the pots. They do not like being saturated. Even in Florida, uh, you think of Florida being flat. Uh, however, we do have this central ridge in the middle of the state where we have deeper sands where you have to go down 30 feet before you hit the water table down there. Uh, then parts of Florida where the water table is just, you know, a foot or two below the surface. And these nematode problems are a lot more severe with those, in those uh, deep sands that are well-drained. This nematode really doesn't like to be wet. In ag, one of the things we've done, uh, for example, uh, in the sugarcane where sting nematodes are a problem, uh, you can effectively control sting nematodes through flooding. You just flood your fields and it kills the nematodes. Uh, on a golf green, you can't really do that. No. <laughs> uh, so. I'm speaking with Professor Billy Crow uh, at the University of Florida, Gainesville. And Billy, you set me up really good. When we get back, we're going to talk about genus and species and nematodes being the classic herd animals. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. When dealing with nematodes, it's vital to get the product into the root zone where it is needed, and better infiltration makes that happen. 
Dryject Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for coarse sand particle injection that will lead to better drainage and infiltration of your products by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Dryject Services representative or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm here with Professor Billy Crow. We're chatting nematodes. And Billy, we're going to get into this a little bit. And let's start out with, you know, how many people worry about what do I have? What's the genus? What's the species? And the importance of knowing that to be able to determine some form of, you know, strategic control. Not all meloidogynes are problematic, for example, Mm -hmm. but a couple of them like the Maryland one and the one you've got in Florida are really problematic. So why is it important at first when you suspect a problem to get genus and species from a management perspective? Okay. So first thing is to determine what role nematodes are playing in the problem you're having if you're having a problem. So so once you identify you've got a nematode problem, one of the things that's different uh, from when I started my career, you know, Florida used, I think, 95% of the Nemecure that was used on golf courses was used in Florida. Uh, Nemecure was really good in that it was effective on all these different types of problem nematodes we have on golf courses in Florida. Now, our new generation, the Maticides, can be uh, very effective, but they're not equally effective on all the different types of nematodes. So the main thing is that you, you want to know what type of nematode you need to target your management program for, because that's going to determine what products you select. Perfect. And this is the 75th anniversary of turfgrass nematology, and it was actually started here at University of Florida in 1952. Uh, with the first ever turf grass nematode experiment. Uh, it was conducted by Dr. Vernon Perry at the time. So he, he started working with nematodes, found that they caused damage to turf. He was really targeting sting nematode. He was involved with the uh, development of different treatments for sting nematodes. And so uh, in the late 1960s, the main nematicide he was recommending for golf greens here in Florida was this product called Dazenit, which is not around anymore. But uh, he started hearing reports of Dazenit not working. And then it was, the nematodes getting resistant to it. Well, so he started investigating this. And what he found was that Dazenit was still working great on sting nematodes. Uh, well, well, lance nematodes were not affected by Dazenit. And that while you're effectively controlling sting nematodes, you're leaving lance nematodes alone. And early on, he kind of ignored lance nematodes, but in, with these uh, constant treatment with Dazenit, these numbers of lance nematodes got really, really high and it's really started whacking the grass. And that's what people were seeing was damage from lance nematodes. And so that's then when he uh, started looking, what else can we use that controls lance nematodes too? And that's when they landed on uh, Nemecure. Well, Nemecure is a broad spectrum material, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a nerve toxin. Mm -hmm. And nematodes are animals, they have a nervous system. And so uh, it affects anything with the nervous system. So, you know, all your types of nematodes, as well as birds and fish and people and, okay. and everything else, which is the main reason we don't have it anymore. Right. So uh, these new generation nematicides tend to be a lot more targeted. Mm-hmm. In 2016 was the year that Bayer launched Indemnify and Syngenta launched Divinem. Okay. The research that, that we've done here in Florida, we have found 
indemnified to be very effective on sting nematode, to be effective on root knot nematode. We have found divinim and other abamectin products to be effective on root knot nematodes, but less so on sting nematode and other nematodes. Neither of them is effective at all on lance nematodes. So we have seen the same thing Dr. Perry saw as, as we've been using these. Uh, these, uh, these are the two primary nematicides used today. Neither of them work on lance nematodes very well. So lance nematode numbers are coming up, and once again, lance nematodes are now becoming a big deal. So the reason you test, okay, if I got sting nematodes, okay, if you're here in Florida, we have uh, you know, curfew we can use, which, you know, and we have indemnify we can use. Those would be my two primary products for managing sting nematode. If you had root knot nematodes, lean more toward you know using an abamectin product. If you have sting nematodes and root knot nematodes, that would lead toward indemnify. If you got lance nematodes, there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But that's why it's important to know which types of nematodes you have so that you can build your management program using the right treatments. Okay, so, so let's get into that a little bit because in reviewing some of the literature, things that jumped out at me, right, when I, I'm a trained as a weed scientist, so I think of plants as annual, perennial, biennial, right, life cycle things. I think mm-hmm. of them as uh, able to produce perennial storage organs like a dandelion or a quackgrass and then, you know, mm-hmm. primarily reproducing from seed. It looks like in nematodes you have ectoparasitic and endoparasitic, which means possibly on the surface of the root or into the root. And mm-hmm. some of them are migratory. They can maybe live uh, in both places, it sounds like. So mm-hmm. in addition to knowing these organisms, root knot, sting, and lance, uh, helping your strategy, can you talk a little bit about understanding how them being either ecto or endo impacts what kinds of chemicals work on them? Sure. And we spent a lot of time also looking at movement, behavior, and things. So, so uh, I'll start off with the simple one. Okay, so your, your ectoparasites, think of these as like a, an, an aphid on a leaf, or think of a tick, okay? It sucks on you, but most of its body stays outside, so you can pull that tick off. Now, sometimes they get embedded in there, obviously, but those are ectoparasites. Uh, they stay outside. A sting nematode has a spear, a stylet. It pokes into the root tip and then injects enzymes into the root to kind of pre-digest it and then sucks the juices back out. So, uh, but it's, it spends its whole life out in the soil, lays its eggs in the soil. And so uh, because it's in the soil all the time, it's actually the easiest to kill because it's out in the soil all the time. So... There's a number of these ectoparasites, uh, like in sting nematode being one, spiral nematodes, ring nematodes. Uh, these are all examples of ones that can damage turf that are ectoparasites. So to kill them, a contact nematicide will work, something like Yes, contact, contact nematicides or, or systemic, because you've got a systemic, the nematode will take it up as it feeds on the plant. So ah. either contact or systemic products work good on ectoparasites. Now... In contrast to that, a root knot nematode is what's called a sedentary endoparasite. And so the juvenile nematode, the second stage juvenile, so it hatches from the egg, and that goes inside of a root, and then it establishes a permanent feeding site, and then doesn't move anymore. It stays in that one spot the rest of its life and, and feeds on these specialized cells that develop. Now, uh, it molts. It goes through several molts until it's an adult. Then the female nematode lays up to several hundred eggs in this egg mass. But the only time this nematode is outside of the root 
is as that second stage juvenile after it hatches from the egg and before it gets inside another root. Mm. Is that when it's vulnerable, when it's making its way out of the root? Yeah, yeah. if you're going to kill an ectoparasite, that's the vulnerable time. But that may only be a few hours. And so if you have a strictly contact nematicide, if it doesn't stay present in the soil for very long, you may kill the juveniles that are out in the soil, but after the pesticide is gone, either through leaching or degradation, you know, nematodes will continue their life cycle inside that root. So when those eggs hatch, they come out and the pesticide's gone. Mm-hmm. If you've got contact products, you need something that's going to either stay around for a long time or something you use repeatedly. So about the time it starts breaking down, you apply more. Now, uh, one of the things that we have found in our research here at Florida, now, now again, I'm, I'm in Florida, so our root knot nematodes here, we have primarily this one Moloidogyne graminus. You'll have different species up in, in New York and places, okay? But our, our nematodes we have found, our, our root knot nematodes, actually stay up in roots growing up in the thatch and right where the thatch and the soil interface there. They're really up at the top. Mm-hmm. To control that nematode well, you want something that's not going to be very mobile that hangs up and stays up in the top part of the soil. On the contrast, sting nematode occurs down in the soil, so you have to get your chemical through the thatch to get to that nematode. So ideally, the properties of your nematicide are going to vary depending on which of those two nematodes exactly right. that you're trying to get to. All right, so listen, before we go to the next break, I'm going to take a minute now and talk about this really cool research you did around extraction techniques and how you showed what you found in California soils, Texas soils, and Florida soils with Mm -hmm. how your mist chambers work. So let's start talking a little bit about lab analysis, and then we'll make our way to these techniques that you did a great job in talking about and publishing about recently. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the concept of thresholds. (laughs) Okay. Um, It feels elusive to me. Let's talk about it in the context of the world you live in in Florida, where it's Mm -hmm. a more potentially primary problem than it might be where I am uh, in more northern climates. How comfortable do you feel with thresholds that have been established? Because when I read about your stuff and I listen to you speak on webinars, you know, this is where we think the threshold is. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we don't see damage, right? So can you talk a little bit about thresholds and concept and then we'll get to some of the sampling techniques you've done in the lab. Okay. Nematode thresholds, the best application for these things are in annual crops. Like if I can sample before I plant my potatoes, and I can estimate this amount of nematodes going to equate to about this much yield losses and how much value that is, and my treatment costs this, and decide whether I want to treat or not. Like I said, turf is very different. You don't have that. You're not measuring a yield per se. That in and of itself makes it kind of weird. And uh, and different golf courses have different tolerance for what they accept. And uh, I don't know, Frank, you've probably had this experience. You know, uh, you know you're, you're, you're out at a, a golf course and the superintendent's showing you stuff. And you're thinking, well, wow, that doesn't look bad. And he's like, this is the worst I've ever seen. You know, exactly or you'll see right. something really bad and they'll be like, yeah, this is actually, this is really good. You know, and you're like, okay. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of subjective, right? What, you know, and what people can tolerate and various, rightly so, from golf course to golf course and what the expectations are. I mean, we can do research, you know, on a particular site at a particular time and define this is what the tolerance limit for this nematode is. Now, at a different time of the year, 
the grass can tolerate more or less of that nematode because the grass is either actively growing or less growing less or more. If you have weather, it's, it's hotter and under more stress, you have salts. Okay, so all these things that happen, you never really practically know. You know, you can define it experimentally on what it was, but you can't really accurately predict my grass is going to die if I have this many nematodes or, or it's going to decline, you know, 15%. Well, and, and, and I would say one of the things I learned from uh, watching your webinar on TurfNet last week that I think you did back in 2020 was uh, depending on the species that you have and the timing of the sampling, like you said, mm-hmm. the root knot staying up in the top, but you also said another one's going to go way down deeper into mm-hmm. the soil. So you may not even be sampling correctly for the right species, uh, never mind finding a threshold that's subjective. So it has, it right. can be confounded. And, and so, so even on this, even on the same, on, a, on one putting green, okay, you've got areas of that putting green that gets more traffic than others. Those spots can tolerate fewer nematodes than the place that get less traffic. Or you get more shade. Uh, so these are kind of estimates. What uh, we use in our lab, I kind of have these risk categories. You know, just like, you know, if you go to the doctor and you get tested for cholesterol, you know, the kind of you, you're at low risk of heart disease, moderate or high, depending mm-hmm. on your cholesterol levels. Doesn't mean you're going to die from, you know, if, you, if your cholesterol is high, but you have a higher risk of something bad happening. Okay, so it's the same thing with our, our risk thresholds. Uh, we look at the nematodes we find, and for each of those kinds, we'll say, okay, you're at you know, low risk, moderate risk, or high risk of damage occurring. If you're at high risk, that doesn't mean damage will happen. It means you're at high risk of it. And just saying if you're low risk, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a nematode problem. It's interesting, a, a trial we got going on right now, and we have a two-year study. In this trial, we have grass that's treated with curfew nematicide in other plots that don't get treated. And uh, this is just a once-a-year treatment. What we find is that in the plots that, as you go through the year, the plots that got the nematicide end up with higher nematode counts than the plots that didn't get nematicide. Well, if you look at the roots, there's more roots in those plots. And then the untreated plots, the roots get less and less. Ten months after treatment, you've got almost no roots at all in those untreated plots. And in those untreated plots now, my nematode numbers are actually in the low-risk category based just upon the numbers. Yeah, there's not enough roots to sustain. And that's because there's nothing to eat there. (laughs) And so one thing I stress with these nematode counts and risk levels I'm sitting in a lab, okay, or whoever you're sending them to is sitting in a lab. They're not looking at your grass. And, and, and so you really have to take those numbers and look at the roots of your grass, the health of your grass. And if I've got a decent root system, those numbers mean something completely different than if I have very little root system. And so that's where the superintendent really has to be aware of what's going on and not just depend upon lab reports, but to really take those and look at the specifics of what's going on at that course. All right. So, Billy, listen, I want to just go a couple more minutes on this particular topic, and you got to give it to me in a just a couple of minutes. I, mm-hmm. In addition to that interpretation that uh, you're talking about that a superintendent has to do, right, you mm-hmm. just said, honestly, you're sitting in a lab. Mm-hmm. You also realized that maybe there are different ways to extract certain nematodes that might be more efficient, much like yeah. there's different ways to extract nutrients chemically from a soil. 
Can you take a minute and talk about first why you even thought to try a different way of extraction and mm-hmm. just in simple terms, what you found between some of the different regions you've looked at in the country? Okay. I got the long version and short version of this story, okay? <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you the condensed version Excellent. here. Okay. Excellent. So uh, I've been suspecting since going way back from when I was at Texas A&M, uh, where I would see what I suspected was maybe root knot nematodes, but you do these soil assays and the numbers were not really telling me much, okay? But what really got into it was when we were really working a lot with testing abamectin nematicides with Syngenta back in 2012 to 15 in that time frame, especially. And uh, back then, Syngenta had us using uh, these abamectin nematicides, trying to control sting nematodes. And I would consistently get these nice turf responses, nice green squares where we treat with this abamectin, but I could never show we killed a single sting nematode. It was kind of maddening. And so I started looking what's going on, and so we started doing depth sampling because we knew that abamectin hangs up in the top in the thatch and really doesn't move very much. It stays really up at the top. And so we started looking at that and found that even in these plots where we had very few root-knot nematode juveniles in the soil, we could find large numbers inside those roots. Then we spent a couple years trying different ways to how best get at those numbers, what's actually inside the roots. We ended up going with this uh, mist extraction method, which is a uh, mist extraction for nematodes has been around for a long time. It's just a modification of that toward that for turf. Mm. A traditional soil extraction, we extract the nematodes from the soil, it involves centrifugation and sugar flotation. And, but the plug up at the top, the grass and thatch and all that, that part you throw away. Well, I found out we were throwing away all the root-knot nematodes when we were doing that. So we now take an inch-and-a-half diameter plug, wash the soil off, and, and put four of those uh, from each putting green uh, in, the, in our mist chamber for 72 hours. And as the nematode eggs hatch, the young nematodes get washed onto a coffee filter, and they crawl through the coffee filter and drop down into these flasks down below. And we found that that was a much, 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 much better way of getting these root-knot nematodes from Bermuda grass. But it also revealed differences from regions. Right. Yes, so we developed, again, I'm in Florida, so we, of course, we kind of developed this here in Florida for our grasses. Then we started looking regionally. Our nematode assay lab gets samples from most of the country. We get a lot of samples from Texas, and we get a lot of samples from California, for example. As we started implementing our technique in our diagnostic lab, we started getting golf courses sending us both types of samples, from mist extraction and from soil extraction. And when we could, then we looked at what we got from the soil, what we got, got from the mist samples. So on Bermuda grasses in Florida and in Texas both, this mist extraction gave us a much better recovery, much more accurate results than soil extraction. However... Our samples from California, which now they have some warm season grasses in California, but for some reason, all the samples we got from California were from cool season grasses. They all say, you know, POA slash bent. And on all those, we actually got better recovery from the soil than the mist. So my conclusion was that for our warm season grasses, this mist extraction is the preferred method for extracting root knot nematodes, but not necessarily for cool season grasses. Now, I will say there's some exceptions to that. There's a few golf courses in California where they've had traditional soil extraction done, didn't find much, and we did mist and got a bunch out. Would that be for the anguina on the cool season, on the POA? 
Now, this is specifically talking about our root knot nematodes here, okay? Now, uh, we do also do anguinus samples, and we actually even have a different <laughs> method we, we developed for that. So okay. we do have targeted extraction methods. Generally, in most cases, people want to send soil samples, traditional soil assay. But if you really want to get a good estimate of root knot nematodes, especially on warm season grasses, we recommend doing it with this mist extraction which is a little bit different sampling method and sampling tools. And if you go on our Nematode Assay Lab website, I have video links on there. It shows you how to take each type of sample. Yeah, that's just how I wanted to end this segment, Billy. They can just go to the website and find out how to submit a sample if anybody wants to do this with your assay lab, because I love to hear the specificity of the testing because Mm -hmm. we want to be data-driven, but we want to have data that represents what we're trying to drive. Right. Mm -hmm. So getting that data clean is really important. So listen, we'll take a break and we'll get back to our conversation. We're going to end up chatting about nematicides when we get back. Billy, looking forward to it. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. As nematodes damage the root system, nutrient management becomes even more critical to nurse plants through the persistent injury. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. The professionals at the Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and back them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've got the research to back up their claims and products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. It is amazing to me how many nematode problems began to emerge in the northern part of the United States when our two biggest chemical companies released nematicides. Now, Mm -hmm. that might sound a sarcastic attitude for a guy not six generations from Florida like you are. And I know the earth is warming and, you know, we're going to have more generations of these things. But I want to get your perspective first on that point in places where nematodes might have been not considered a primary problem. What's your Mm -hmm. perspective on maybe how we're using them where we don't need to? Good point. These companies, uh, they excel at marketing, okay? I I think when uh, these things first came out, again, uh, you have competition from the companies. I mean, they were testing these products, you know, different places, and I guess enough uh, golf course superintendents tried them and they proved that, you know, maybe nematodes were causing more damage than they thought previously. But the one thing you want to avoid, I don't like going and, and putting something just because or just in case. One of the projects we're currently working on is looking at developing of uh, resistance to some nematicides, okay? We've actually uh, found that with repeat applications of of these new generation nematicides, nematodes start having decreased sensitivity to it. So uh, if you're putting out where you don't need to, you can be selecting for (laughs) resistance. So if you ever did have a problem, nematicides wouldn't work. So... Mm. This is another thing I've heard, and you mentioned it. I got some notes here. A second ago, you said when you were testing Devonim, but Mm -hmm. I think I've also heard it for Indemnify. I've visited golf courses in Chicago, for example, that, you know, counts weren't high. They've eliminated a lot of other problems, and they made a Devonim, or I can't remember, one of the applications, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And like you said, the turf looked better. What else are these things potentially doing? Is it possible we've got sublethal effects of some of these things, organisms like nematodes, that these products are cleaning up? What is the nature of why, even when counts don't reveal things, that the mm. turf sometimes greens up? Okay, so for example, fluopyrium is the active ingredient in indemnify. It is also a fungicide, okay? And so you could be getting fungicidal benefits from this. Sometimes your positive response may be due to control of something else besides the nematodes. Divinium, the active ingredient is abamectin, which is a miticide and insecticide. So you may be controlling some arthropod as well. Sometimes it's difficult. <laughs> you know, you see the grass gets better. Well, it often... Is due to nematode control, but not always. It could be you know, due to uh, controlling some other pest or pathogen in the soil. In addition to resistance, Billy, one of the things I hear you say, let, let, me, let me bring up some things I've heard you say on your mm. webinar, and you said it just here. One of the things that's important for control is if you don't have a long residual, you have to keep applying it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we generally don't like about a lot of modern pesticides is their persistence. That tends to be a knock against them. How worried are you about something that's persistent and very effective also having non-target effects on arthropods and other soil animals? Sure. So that is something that's of concern. A few years ago, one of my graduate students, we looked at different turfgrass nematicides and looked at their impacts on non-target nematodes and also arthropods. And uh, fluopyrium, the active ingredient in indemnify, is a very, very long-lived product. It's even more effective killing good nematodes than bad ones, okay? Mm. Uh, And so uh, it it takes out a lot of the bacterial-feeding nematodes and these what we call omnivorous nematodes. Mm. If you're looking at an ecological standpoint, that is a very harsh treatment. Is that a treadmill that we get on then, Billy? I mean, once we start using it and throw the balance off like that, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm using language that's not very scientific, throw the balance right. off, but you mentioned ecologically. Do we get mm-hmm. on a treadmill that because we're having those non-target effects, like the lance nematode able to evade certain controls, right, that the way mm-hmm. certain things work, do we run the risk of getting on that treadmill once we start using these things? Yes. And just because the label says you can apply it so many times a year doesn't mean you have to. <laughs> <laughs> so, and again, it gets back to what, you know, like a lot of the research we do here in Florida is we're, we're trying to learn what these nematodes are doing, when they're doing it, and where they're doing it, so we can really kind of target our applications when they're going to be most effective, you know, not just be putting things out four times a year. If, if you lived in the north, And this is maybe a good place for us to wrap it up because it brings us back to sort of what motivated me all along. You'd scrutinize a nematode diagnosis pretty heavily in the North, wouldn't you? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by scrutinize it. So if somebody said, oh, yeah, this is definitely a nematode problem. Look at the counts in the Mm -hmm. soil. The turf looks bad. Look at the threshold value. It's way over the top. How common do you think, I guess this is the question, how common are nematode problems in cool season grasses from your experience? Uh, not nearly as common as they are further south, okay? Uh, your, your cool season grasses tend to tolerate nematodes better than warm season grasses to start with. 
in the warmer climates, we have more generations of nematodes. Sometimes a problem the further north you get, but not nearly as common as you get to uh, coastal southern areas. So, okay, so where you are, I mean, Nemecure came and went, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it had, had its share of problems, one of the few things you had to close the golf course for to apply. Now you've got these new ones there and their potential non-target effects. I'm assuming you're working with new active ingredients, but I also am assuming that that means that there aren't really many options when you get plant parasitic nematode problems beyond currently we have a few yeah there's some a couple we'll probably be getting a you know a few new ones here uh so ideally you want to be able to rotate you know have at least a couple things to work on each of these different main types of nematodes so you can rotate and not be using the same thing all the time but we're dependent it's not like you're finding a lot of biologicals like that zelto product is on the market but it sounds like it's very short-lived and very specific and good for Mm -hmm. low pressure well, I mean, you know, and we're actually combining that right now with another biological and getting better results with it. I don't want to talk too much about experimental stuff we're doing, but yeah, yeah, okay. uh, but, but yeah that's a, a what we call a killed microbial fermentation product. It's not a live bacteria, but it's chemicals produced by the bacteria. Could you ever imagine, let me, let's wrap it up with this, Billy. Here's my crazy question for the day, and you've been just great in putting up with this Yankee. Can you ever imagine incorporating anything biological in the soil that might become resident in a turf system, sustain itself, and then keep the plant parasitic nematode population at bay? Uh, most of those things are already present in your soil. You know, nematodes get attacked by different bacteria and fungi. And now I will say one of the challenges in, in the golf situation is there's so much fungicides used. I think you uh, kill off a lot of the fungal parasites. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's some of the reasons we have these <laughs> some of these nematode problems. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's uh, to get rid of all the nematodes, no, but to help reduce how often you got to apply nematicides or use nematicides for sure. Bayer had that Nordica uh, biological that I had, I was really happy with. If you used it right, you could get uh, good results with it. But when they came out with Indemnify, they quit supporting the biologicals. But again, it's tricky to use. Biologicals are, you know, they're, you know, especially at live ones, uh, you got to have the right conditions for them to establish and persist. Okay, listen, ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses, I remember my old friend, the pathologist Bruce Martin at Clemson said when they came on the market, it literally revitalized his pathological career because it was finally a Bermuda grass that got routine disease. Mm -hmm. Fungicides were not commonplace on even just dwarf Bermuda grass greens years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you think from your 20 years of being down there that the increased use of fungicide can be somewhat associated with some of the increased nematode problems we're having? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Like, like I said, a lot of these nematodes are naturally held in check by parasitic fungi. And with heavy use of uh, fungicides, you reduce those natural enemies of the nematodes, and so their problems become worse. Mm. Okay. Billy, you were in the service, I, I thought you said, were you? Uh, no, no. My son's is currently in the Army. Yeah. I actually, when I was 16, I got shot in my left arm, so I only have partial use of my left arm, so I wasn't qualified health-wise to serve anyway, but everybody else, everybody else in my family did. <laughs> so, yeah, my son's uh, currently in, in Italy, you know, as an airborne uh, infantry recon specialist. Okay, well, let's just hope we never have to put that young man in harm's way. 
I really appreciate you taking the time, Billy. Thanks a lot. Okay, you bet, Frank. Big thanks to Professor Billy Crow from the University of Florida, Gainesville. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.